You're listening to another episode of Flux Pod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. Uh, this episode features Jasmine Whitegloves uh, from the band No Joy. Uh, she's here to talk about her new album Motherhood, and uh, Jasmine's also from Canada. And near the end of this, we're going to talk a little bit uh, about how like the artistic grants system works in Canada and how it's a very good thing that. You know, if only it existed the United States and some other places. Um, this is a free episode of the show. Uh, on Saturdays, there are bonus episodes uh, just for Patreon subscribers. And if you want to get those, and they're good, I'm telling you, they're good episodes, you got to hit patreon.com slash fluxbog. $5 a month will get you four to five extra episodes per month of the show. And also, you know, if uh, you like what you're hearing, you got to tell other people because this is not a corporate thing. This is no advertising. It's completely word of mouth. So if you tell other people, social media, I don't know, just in your day-to-day conversations, whatever it is, I don't know, just tell people about the show and I would greatly appreciate it. Uh, anyway, let's get to the show uh, with no joy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Jasmine White Gloves. Yes. Who are you and what do you do? I am a musician. I wish I was in the band Corn, but instead I play music under the name No Joy. Okay. Uh, and you have a new record out. Mm hmm. And it's called Motherhood. It is. Yes. And it's uh, been a long time in the works, I understand. Long time. Didn't didn't really feel that long, but then I was like, whoa, that was a very long time. It was about five years. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you had EPs and stuff along the way, but it's like, yeah. you know, about five years since the previous record, uh, yeah. More Faithful, which mm-hmm. I really liked a lot. And like one of the really nice things about your record being out now is that it's gotten like a really, really good coverage, really good. Uh, it's been re- very well received. And I think I spent like five years like, screaming at the world to listen to your band and now they do or at least like a a certain portion of the world does so that's 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 been a very positive thing you know you 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 take the the positive where you can in 2020 but yeah like like how how has the release been for you i I know it must be weird to not tour yeah it's super weird that's that's you know every time i put out any record even even the eps in the five years we always toured them and especially a full length, you kind of like get into, I don't know why, but you get into this like headspace um, that you're going to just tour forever. Like you just, you're gone. You're out for like eight months, nine months. And so I was kind of prepared for that when I was making this record thinking like, that's when I'm going to start doing the big tour cycles again and the headlining and blah, 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 blah. And anyways, it's literally the exact opposite. <laughs> I haven't done any touring <laughs> whatsoever. Um so it's it's bittersweet because I would have really liked to take some of these songs and play them live and and uh, you know had ideas about how to do all that and it hasn't been able to come to fruition just yet but here's hoping maybe soon. Yeah, I was going to ask you like is is the is it just kind of deferred or is like like how does it work uh, on your end like as for when it's like this kind of you know like everything is a question mark. Yeah, yeah, it's. Um, a lot of it is pushed back and then it's, you know, hypothetical as, as we kind of saw in the spring when people pushed their spring tours back to the fall and then it was 
okay, actually from fall to like next fall. And so everybody's kind of guessing when it's going to be. I'm, I'm hoping next year, 2021, there's going to be some kind of touring that happens. But it, again, it kind of like day by day sort of thing. <laughs> Who knows what's actually going to happen? Did you have like a, a new band together for, to kind of pull the stuff off? Um, well, since 2017, I've been playing with Tara McLeod, um, who plays on the record. She was, she was in the band Kitty, um, and she's in the band Nice Horse. And so she has kind of been uh, with me on all the tours for the past, you know, two and a half, three years. So um, because she was part of the record, we were, we were definitely planning on touring together. And um, Jamie Thompson, who played drums on the record, he was probably going to come out with some stuff. I had, you know, mixed up the lineups in the past year or so for live stuff. And um, especially because this record, Motherhead, has so many instruments on it, too. I, I did have ideas about bringing, you know, different people on tour, having different lineups depending on the show. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> we'll see. Wah, wah. How would you describe this record to people who have not heard it yet? Um. I don't know. I feel like it's uh, it's a very, I don't know, sometimes when people ask me, I, I say like, I just, I went kind of cuckoo, like I was just trying stuff. So you can just hear me like trying a lot of ideas. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's a um, very dense record. I think it's a headphones listen record. Um, but I also think it's like a somewhat I've, I feel like polarizing. I think if you like it, you'll love it. But if you hate it, you're going to think it's so bad. Um, so <laughs> yeah, it's one or the other. <laughs> um, so yeah, probably something like that. Yeah. And you're, I mean, relative to the previous records, it kind of feels like there's this kind of steady evolution towards like just p- pouring more and more sounds into the records. Cause you start off as a pretty, uh, like pretty straight ahead shoegaze band. And now it's just like this whole stew of things. Mm-hmm. And I was curious, like, um, is this the result of, I mean, it's, it's probably a little of both, but is this more like your skill level reaching, uh, your taste or is it more like having the courage to like both tell people these are things you're into and also perform them? Yeah, I think it's probably, uh, I don't know. I think a lot of it also had to do with, I was pretty tired of touring as a band, like being just like a rock band. I just didn't really feel like I had much left to say in that sort of setup. Um, and I don't know, I think like my influences are all over the place and there were things that I wanted to pull from and I really, uh, wanted to sort of put something together that I hadn't done before. Um, I definitely wanted to take more of the recording approach that we had done on wait to pleasure, which was sort of like half write it in the studio, half just like figure it out and have fun. Um, whereas Ghost Blonde and More Faithful were more so like we practiced the songs, we played the songs, and then we all played the songs together and recorded them. So it went back a bit to like the way we uh, recorded Wait to Pleasure or Pass Out and Pass Out, which were sort of like we had an idea of the song, but like it really just came together in the studio. And I, I purposely left these songs on Motherhood quite loose and like open to ideas so that when they did get to the studio, we could just sort of improvise. Um, which 
Yeah, which is where a lot of the what my favorite parts of the records happened were just like when we were just fucking around in the studio. So, like, what's a good example of that? Um, I mean, the the there's a there's a lot of Easter eggs on the record where like I hear stuff where I'm like, oh yeah, we did that, but like no one else has picked up on it. I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> but there's you know <laughs> like in the first song on the record, birthmark, we were like just watching YouTube, like watching um, Hannah's Field, which are like these like ro- white Rasta, like really kind of like Ross Trent, if you ever watch that SNL skit. It's like that <laughs> style. And we were just like kind of, you know, poking fun at it a little bit. And then there was, there's like one part in the song where they do this really funny, like, come on. And they're playing bongos. So we were just like, let's everybody one at a time go in there and just say like, come on into a microphone and then like play some bongos. And that's very audible on that song. <laughs> there's bongos all over it. And like us just make like improvising based on a bad YouTube video we watched. Um, so that's one example, you know, there's, there's, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot on there. I don't think a lot of people would have made that sort of <laughs> indirect Ross Trent uh, connection. Yeah, it's there. It's there. Now, when you hear, now, when you hear the song, you want people to unhear it, but, um, you know, that kind of thing. I've heard that song a lot, but I can't remember that part. <laughs> it's really quick. It's like, that's what's so funny about it. It's like, it's just like a one moment thing that the guy has in the song, but. Yeah, it's it's truly uh, you find inspiration in the in the strangest places sometimes. I think. <laughs> So when you're doing the parts that are more like kind of a direct genre reference, was that something that was just kind of like you were just fucking around or was that something where you just kind of consciously wanted to integrate that stuff? Nothing was, um, I don't think on any record I've ever been like, I want to sound like, I want it to sound like it's from this era or it's like this. It was really pulling from like many different places. Um, So, you know, sometimes it would be like, uh, guitar tones from Reptile from Nine Inch Nails, which is like one of my favorite bands. So we would, but it's like that particular tone, but it's in a song where we had like vibraphone and we were trying to capture some sort of like new agey feel. So to me, it doesn't, it doesn't really reference any particular like time and place, but it's a collection of like different influences from all over the place. Yeah. And I, I know you've said that four is one of your favorites. And that one, I think, is just fascinating because it's it's really just kind of like moving through like at least I guess there's like three sections of that song. Mm-hmm. And like, how did that one come together? Was that kind of pieced together? Or is that like, because it's kind of hard to imagine how that kind of, you know, came into the world. Yeah, it's, um, it started 
as like a kind of a piano guitar demo that I had. And truthfully, like, I think like I blacked out while we were <laughs> writing that song. Like, I don't really remember. I know I was in LA when we first started, George Albrecht and I started kind of working the song and trying to figure it out. And we were, we were transposing a lot of times. If I have a guitar part, I'll say like, why don't we just use that part, but like put it on a different instrument to see what it sounds like. So there was a lot of piano going back and forth with guitar. And then at some point we were just like going crazy with samples. And then I don't know. And then it just sort of happened. Like it just sort of snowballed from there. So I actually have no real recollection of how we got it, where it is. Like it started the main sort of guitar parts that are at the beginning and the end of the song were sort of where my demo was, but the entire baby middle section, we were just like having fun and being like, ha ah, wouldn't it be fun if we did this? Ha ah, wouldn't it be fun if we did this? But there was no like plan. We just kind of went with it. And then it, it is what it is. <laughs> where did you get the baby sound? The baby sound? George had that that sample from somewhere. A lot of it was either like pitching either of our voices up and down. Um, and he, I mean, he's such a an audio whiz that he just has like hard drives and hard drives of samples that we could dig through. So um, if we weren't making the sample ourselves, it was like something from his computer. <laughs> Have you have you tried playing that one live with a band? Yeah, yet? yeah, yeah. It's it's we've played it well for live streams anyway for two of them, and the first time we did it, it was a live stream where uh, Jamie on drums and myself were together, but Tara was remotely playing. It was like kind of a you know a strange setup, but once we played that song, we were all like, "Holy shit! Actually, that really works live, <laughs> and it's actually so fun to play." Um, but I, I, I wouldn't have thought it would have been so fun to play. But now it's it's definitely one that is sticking around for the live set. 
Yeah. Do you, do you feel like you're moving further in the direction of like this, this kind of, uh, well, I guess that song, but also kind of what you're saying before about like making these things more like studio productions, more like fully digital, these kind of big sculptures, I guess. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I, I really like production. I think it's something I listen to music for, even though that's lame, <laughs> lame thing to say. I, I really kind of, I'm at a stage as a as a music listener that I'm appreciating things that um, challenge me sonically, and I'm not always necessarily listening for raw or like earnestness. But I'm looking for like, how the fuck did they make that sound? Or like, what is that? And um, so for that reason, I think I'm I'm kind of going in a direction where I I'm looking for more like sonic soundscapes as opposed to um you know and I, I guess ultimately i'm i'm a maximalist with the kind of music i like i like things where you can listen to it over and over again and you're still like i don't understand <laughs> i have to listen to this song like a hundred times in a row because i don't understand how they did this or what this is um so so like so what's a good example that you're that you've been listening to a lot recently um well i get i mean recently uh there's a song by boards of canada that they performed at atp 2001 that they opened with that's never been re- released from what i understand echus or etchus i don't know how you pronounce it but echus is the the name that it has um and that song because it's like a board feed recording it's so it's like I've just listened to it so much trying to figure out like, OK, this is a live recording, but like you can't see what they're doing. So like, how are they doing this live? And the song was never released, but did it become another song that they did release? And so that's what I've just been listening to over and over and over again. And it's it's just like a bootleg.
they released like an EP that was kind of like some kind of session. It was, it was some kind of live thing. It was like, I, I know I wrote about it maybe, I don't know, sometime in the past mm-hmm. year. And it was a similar thing of just like, I can't figure out what they're doing. Yeah. Like, I can't understand. I, it's hard to parse like what is actually live, like what the process mm-hmm. is. And like that mystery is so, you know, it, it, it really kind of draws you yeah. in in a way that like, it probably is more exciting to hear it in this way than being in the room. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, there's like a I don't know because it's it's so mysterious and there's um, I don't know I like that I like artists like that that you're just like who are they what are they doing I don't understand it's so mysterious um, and par- you know part of the reason when No Joy started we never had like press photos or anything was because I, I still admired that sort of like anonymousness that you could have um, making music and how it's cool to like be like I don't know never really know who who Aphex Twin really is like or you you know it's like something where there's like this person but you don't really know or burial like who are they really you don't really know but you like know them as an artist I, I really appreciate that and so the Boards of Canada records always just like kind of haunt me because I'm like, what are they doing? How do they do this? Who are they? What? How did it happen? And yeah, that ATP like what are their lives like? Yeah, because they, they just go so long without doing anything. So I have to assume that they just have like regular yeah, jobs. Yeah, like maybe we know them, but we don't know it's them. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> These two Scottish. Brothers. Yeah, it could be. It could be. We've met them before, but we just didn't know. I wouldn't know. Um. So yeah, I don't know. But uh, so, but you've kind of gone like kind of fully the other direction as far as like putting yourself as uh, you know out in front, so you, you you know people know what you look like now. Like most of the album art and things like that. Oh, sec- the, the, the cover is a goat, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. Like like like, it, it, like you've kind of centered yourself in a way that you hadn't before, and like what what made you feel more comfortable in doing that? Yeah, I think I think because this record was really a personal thing that me myself. I did it and um, it wasn't part of like a, I mean, there was a band and, you know, George and people involved in the project, but in terms of like no joy, it was sort of re reimagining it more like a solo project. So for that reason, I felt like it was kind of necessary to bite the bullet and just like sort of put myself out there. And I have an amazing friend and a visionary Jody Hertz who, um, like kind of figured out how to do this, the album art and the press photos in a way that I was comfortable and that we could do it with stylists and have it make sense. Um, so yeah, it's, I, you know, it took 10 years of being a band before I was comfortable to take press photos, but uh, I did it. So <laughs> finally. <did> it. <laughs> so, so it's like, it seems like now you've kind of, uh, you, you know, you are moving in this sort of, being your own personal Trent Reznor. Oh my gosh! And uh, I passed and, away. Or just sort I of, just your Atticus, kind away. of your Atticus Ross. Oh my god! Don't do that. <laughs> I wish. I wish. That's that's the dream team over there. Yeah. Have you met him? Have you ever met? No. Trent Reznor? Oh my god! I would simply pass away if that happened. <laughs> I, I met him once under a very bizarre circumstances of being uh, interviewed for a job. What? <laughs> like I. <laughs> 
So, um, oh God, like, so I was, I worked at Rolling Stone and then I was laid off from Rolling Stone and I basically had two things in front of me, uh, that kind of fell in my lap. And one was the job I eventually took, which was at at Buzzfeed. Mm -hmm. And the other job was, would be at like, I guess like at at that point it was like Beats by Dre, but it became Apple Music. And, uh, like one of my old editors was like, Hey, you know, would you be interested in getting in on this? And, you know, his boss was Trent Reznor. Oh, my gosh. Um, so I went out to L.A. and I, I met Trent and I had I had a uh, foe with Trent. Oh, Reznor. my God. And- Sorry. <laughs> that is crazy. But yeah, but he is exactly the guy you want him to be. Oh. He's just like he's super intense. He really cares deeply about all the stuff he does. He has like this high level of integrity. Like he will just like I remember like I remember one part of the conversation. It was like me, him, and another guy. Um and he was just talking about laser discs and his laser disc collection and how he'd been collecting laser wow. discs for a long time. Wow. And it's like, yeah. And he's just, he's just like, he's just the world's coolest nerd. That's incredible. That, and good to know. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I I think, uh, I would bet he knows your, I don't think so. I would, I would, I would have tweeted anything. I would bet anything that he has heard motherhood or if he is not, he, I'm going to tweet as we're on the phone. I'm going to go, Hey, Trent. He doesn't really, he doesn't really use Twitter. Uh, How do I get to him? Probably no, there's no way. No. I, Shit. I, I think it would be friends of friends. I'm surely you, you have we do, some kind of music connection. We, I definitely do have musical common friend and and I, I'm not gonna reveal their story, but I, I have a, a close friend who like auditioned to be in Nine Inch Nails also, like at a very weird peak of Nine Inch Nails um career. But I've never like ha- I've never asked anybody like, hey, can you send him my demo? <laughs> hey, can you send him my record? <laughs> can you just check it out? Um, but I have like tweeted and tried to tried to get him to notice me. It's not going to happen. Him and Chino. I'm just like, hey, yeah. hey, over here. <laughs> oh man, I don't know about him, but I I would bet anything that one way or another, motherhood ends up in Trent's lap just from people telling him to listen oh to it. God. I guarantee you, it's going to oh happen God. if it hasn't happened already. Oh my gosh, because he's really on top of yeah, stuff too. like he's like a real listener. Yeah, I can tell. I can tell. Like. He knows what's up, and he's uh, even just from bands that he would bring on tour as as like support on Nine Inch Nails tours, or even on like How to Destroy Angels tours. I was always like, "Oh shit, that is cool! <laughs> you brought cool bands with you." Um, but still, still a little starstruck. What What is your favorite Nails record? So this is controversial because uh, it's. I don't feel there is a bad record. I like all of them. Um, same. same. <laughs> however, there is one record that like I wasn't ready for, but it anyways, with teeth really got me. Uh, it was like, Oh, that is, that is a left field. Yeah. yeah. I, I wasn't ready. Like I wasn't at that phase. I don't know. I was probably into something really stu- like mid aughts. Like, I don't know. I was probably listening to something really bad at that point. And, uh, I didn't, I hadn't heard the record, but I, I got free tickets to see their show. Um, and, uh, it was just like the songs off that record live just like blew me away, like completely blew me away. And I think a big part of it too, at that time was Aaron North was playing guitar from the Icarus line and just live. It was like, so 
life changing to see, um, you know, sometimes those shows where you're not expecting anything, you're just like, Oh cool. I got free tickets to United Nails. Like, okay, let's go. All right. Um, but then I was just so blown away that it, it kind of brought me back into Nine Inch Nails. I was into them in the, in the 90s and then sort of like fell out a bit. And then that record like brought me back really hardcore ever since. So that was... But it sounds like that's actually that's actually his own art. <laughs> pulling out of Nails and coming back with your teeth. <laughs> See, Trent, we're the same. It's nothing. <laughs> we should be friends. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I'm like my favorite is the fragile. Yeah. I'm a huge huge fragile guy, yeah. and that's that's just one of the. I mean, that's when you're when you're talking about the this like the record, you can just kind of go back to a million times, and you always find something new. That's that's kind of like one of the ultimates to me. That one is so dense and mm-hmm. so emotionally heavy. I feel like even for a whole like body of work that's like, very emotionally heavy, that's the one that's just for like, sure. Wow. That one, yeah. um, La Mer off that record was like a production point like like when i was making motherhood there'd be like certain records where i was like i like the sound of that and that that song because it's just like looping piano and just audio samples and just kind of brings you up and then brings you down that one was was on our our list of like oh god if we could make a song like this Uh, so, so what was, did you kind of enter in with the downward spiral, I guess? Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's when I was. Yeah. I, think we're, I think we're probably roughly around the same yeah. age. So it would kind of. Downward spiral. And then you like go back and you're like, oh, pretty hate machine. But it was like, it had already been out for a little while by the time, by the time I got into it. Um, but downward spiral was the one where like, I guess, you know, like peak MTV, much music videos, the whole the whole like imagery they had the whole everything was was really um they just i don't know they kind of stood out on their own for me at that time um but you know around the fragile too which is interesting i think it's around that era is another i really loved when trent and david bowie worked together on earthling <laughs> oh yeah um so that was like another uh, era of Trent and that I was like really enamored with and like super obsessed with their, their like collaboration and um, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, it, it, I mean, it seems like you really are drawn to a lot of like very late '90s aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Um, it, do I? Do I? Because I know I because I follow you on a few different platforms. Like I think you're a, a Ray of Light fan. Yes. Right? Yeah, love that record. That record's amazing. I, I feel. I feel. I, I can definitely hear like Ray of Light vibes on this record. Oh my gosh! I, which is like <laughs> it's not that common. You don't hear Ray of Light which vibes is, that often. Which is I don't understand why. Like. To me, that record is a per- was a perfect record for Madonna at her like to be a woman of I guess she was probably like forty or something when she put that record out. It was just like so perfect because it was pop. It was like production wise, it was William Orbit who was like so fascinating, and the songs were so good. It was really like yeah. I to me to me Ray of Light is probably one of like the top. Madonna songs for I, I mean she has some good ones but that one is really just I don't know even the vocal takes that they include on there are just so um it's just so interesting um so that that for yeah. sure for sure I've always really loved that chorus lyric and I feel like I just got home yeah. because that's such a that, I feel like that, I feel like that's such a like it's, it feels like so true and so simple yeah yeah and I guess that's kind of that song is like it's sort of like the same motif the whole time. It it doesn't jump like around too much, but you're, it's still, I don't know. It's still like, as soon as that song's over, I just like start playing it again. Cause it's so good. Yeah. I had a friend tell me recently, they learned how to play that on guitar and it's only like the, the real like core of it's only two chords. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would, I can see how that is true. Brave light is like, it still holds up. That record still holds up. Yeah, yeah. I think like yeah, the, the last great Madonna period is like that uh, in music. Yeah, like that's like yeah. she's, she's like really in the zone, and then I think she gets very very self conscious. Yeah, there is something not self conscious about that song. Well, for those records, but Ray of Light specifically, like that vocal <clears throat> to me, because you know Madonna is not known as like a I don't know like a Whitney Houston where it's like she's like a incredibly skilled vocalist but her voice has character and in that song it has so much character she does the little scream and everything it's like it's so you kind of just want to like party with Madonna <laughs> which yeah. is great I really I really love how she sounds on that song Drowned World too mm-hmm. like the opening song yeah and 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 that's a, I mean that's a very like unusual song to open a Madonna record. Yeah, it's kind of like it's, it's kind of a two kind of a two part suite. I think. Yeah, it's a little like yeah. that record. It jumps kind of jumps all over the place too. It's it's yeah. I don't know. I I definitely think yeah. Like the the one two punch of uh, Ray of Light and music was like damn. That was almost it was ahead of its time, and the song from I don't oh know God. if it's on a record, but the song from uh, Austin Powers. Ah, oh, beautiful stranger. Yeah, great song. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that same period. Um, I've always really loved the song "Don't Tell Me." Yes, I oh think my, that's one of the greatest. It's truly incredible. Like truly, truly incredible. The video is incredible. Everything about it is actually perfect. I would love the, for more people to kind of like kind of steal that kind of guitar, like that kind of glitchy guitar part in that song. Yeah, and this feels like something that's well worth stealing. Yeah, I'm surprised it hasn't been stolen. To be honest. Don't tell me to stop. Tell the 
like a bedroom recording of a cover of um what it feels like for a girl by madonna and oh it, yeah you yeah you said on a, on a on a band camp yeah yeah it was like you know it's very lo-fi I just did it at home because it was like snowing outside and had nothing else to do <laughs> last winter but that song too when you listen to it you're just like what the hell and i remember researching i think it might have been a guy from like frou-frou or something that co-wrote it um was really yeah just like a deep dive i'm like who are all these people that worked with madonna at this this one particular era where it sounds super interesting and again like super produced and and different and yeah it's definitely tops have you tried doing uh more that kind of co-writes with like outside people because i mean you had that one song with sonic boom which is i think one of the best ones you've done oh obsession yeah i haven't really i guess guess that was the whole ep yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. no i haven't really done too too much it's something i always want to do i'm i'm doing a few like guest vocal spots on stuff right now um but i haven't done too much co-writing to be honest it was it's definitely something i would want to do more of i think well, A-list songwriters and producers who might be listening to this, uh, get in touch. <laughs> Hello, call me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you got you got an email from Rihanna's people. Yeah. Hello. Come on. No, but it, I mean, there's there's been some things here and there that I've I've worked with. Um, you know, there's a like a song off Motherhood that we never put out that we were talking about redoing soon that I had written. I had written most of it, and then like kind of co co-wrote parts with um daryl from glassjaw and so we're trying to see like if that will we'll be able to do something there um yeah and i'm just doing some guest vocals on some people's stuff now but i would definitely get love to like co-write and see where it goes with other people too do you feel like you become a more confident singer so although like full disclosure like the vocals on motherhood took me like six months to do like i had to sit in a room and sing it a hundred times a day and really practice um but i think i'm more aware of what it takes for me to sing well (laughs) and that is practice i gotta practice um uh i guess uh i'm more confident to an extent but i'm still kind of shy so it does take a little bit to get me um, comfortable, but in terms of recording, like I'm more confident to put the the vocals more up front for sure. Yeah, I, I think part of why I was asking that because I remember seeing you live a couple of times, and your voice was always like so low in the mix that it was almost it was kind of disappointing, honestly, because mm-hmm. I really liked just the sound of your voice. Thank you. And this this sound like a pure like just the grain of the voice level, Thanks. and like and like not being able to hear that was like ah. Yeah, and you know what? That's that's why about uh, three years ago, I, I like revamped the live show with, and that involved, um, 
like making it easier for my vocals to be present and for there to be backup vocals and harmonies and things like that, because they're so central to a lot of the recordings. And, you know, that was part of my, the reason I got exhausted playing in a, just in a rock band was that I couldn't really do that. Like we were always kind of, it was about an experience and I loved that experience, but I was ready to sort of do things that were a bit more um, technically focused on having more of the, the vocal samples and the triggers and having more of a presence with the voice on stage. So, so hopefully now, I mean, they're still not like up, up front. There's still some reverb on it. I'm never going to be totally clean, but <laughs> it's, it's definitely more present than it had been in the past for sure because i also no acapellas no acapellas well actually yes there are acapellas. <laughs> there are acapellas but like it's got some reverb on it like in dream rats there's some there's some parts where like the music stops but it's still i've figured out how to get effects on it and yeah i think that was just i was having more fun as a guitarist when we were a rock band and i felt like it was time for me to start singing more than than just focusing on guitar, I think. What were the, uh, I guess, the artistic goals you were going for in the early days of No Joy? Um, I'm not sure. There wasn't like any mission. I don't think that we had, but it was very. I think all of us had like a relationship with our instruments and our and performing live. That was, and to an extent, I still have this for sure. But it was very confrontational, and it was very like you are fighting against your equipment and your stage and it was always sort of like we wanted the the show to be as intense as possible and that it was as tense as possible for us as well. And hoping that that sort of resonated or like created a, an energy <laughs> to not to be too like kumbaya with talking about it, but you know, like, like I would always be fighting with my gear. It would always be on the, the brink of breaking, um, you know, Garland, who was on drums, like we would always tear down the drums before the set was over. It was always this sort of like push and pull that was happening. And and I loved that. And it was very um, like there's parts of I feel like the show now is the live show whenever we're able to do it again is like a little bit. And maybe it's because I'm older, too. It's a little bit calmer, although it's still intense. But there was times in the the older shows where I remember like throwing a wine bottle off stage and like just shit. Like that was like, what were we thinking? Like almost like you guys think you're punk, but like our songs are not that punk, but we're like, we have that energy somehow. Um, so I don't think we were trying to accomplish anything, but we were always sort of like battling demons on stage somehow. 
<laughs> I, I yeah I, I like the idea of you just throwing wine bottles out it's just like, like it's it, it's a terrible story <laughs> if, if, like were they full <laughs> it was a terrible story i can actually tell you sorry it was at a beautiful venue uh shoot i can't remember it's in san francisco uh maybe like six years ago the probably the most beautiful venue in san francisco i can't remember but anyway we were on tour with dive and we were playing a show and we there was a guy heckling us and there's a video, there's a hate braid video from 1995 where Jamie Jossa like jumps off the stage and just starts beating up a, a heckler. And we had ironically been watching that video kind of being like, that's so cool. Hate braid, like at a like VFW in 1995. So we, so when the heckler started heckling us, like Garland jumped off his drum set and like jumped into the crowd. And then I was just like, what do I do? So I just threw the thing that was next to me, which was like a wine glass or a wine bottle and I remember it hit a kid who was like in wearing a minions hat, but he wasn't the oh, he wasn't the heckler. But I remember it hit him, and being like "fuck," <laughs> he just like ran off stage, embarrassed. <laughs> oh um, god! Yeah, so it's like I, a mess. I, I love the detail of the minions hat. <laughs> I because I, I it's ingrained in my whoever the minions hat guy is. I'm so sorry. Like that wasn't meant for you. I just had bad aim, and it was just you know when you're getting heckled at a show too. Like the guy was. He got thrown out of the show. He was being inappropriate with people around him. It was sort of like that that sort of thing didn't happen very often at our shows. There wasn't often like people fighting in the middle of the room. So the fact that Garland like jumped off the stage and like went into the crowd, we were just it just felt like we were yeah, we were in like a hardcore band from the 90s and the, and then we just like switched on <laughs> that part of us that all of us have. But it wasn't yeah. that cool. I mean, if, it, if, it, if it happened more often, you probably would have better aim. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But luckily, luckily, it, it only happened that one time from what I remember. <laughs> I feel I, can, I feel like I don't really go to see a lot of shows that have like these kind of like crazy things happening like that, even when I see like punk things. But in the recent past, the one show I saw that had the, the, the most insane audience where there were multiple fights and, pe- and people being pulled out was a free Blondie show. What? <laughs> it was It was like uh, maybe two summers ago. It was one of those House of Van shows oh in my Brooklyn. God. And it was um, it was uh, Blondie with Liz Fair and uh, Sasami. Oh! Yeah. yeah it's a great bill and yeah. really good show but for some reason there was just a lot of maniacs going oh to see this show <laughs> and I, and the crazier part is that a lot of the the, the most violent instigators were all like young women well there was i remember there was this one woman who was just going wild and like she punched one of the girls <gasps> i was with in the face and oh it was just, like, gosh and she, she got pulled out by like a team of uh like security guards it was wild it oh was just, my god I, I have no idea why this energy came to them, but I guess in in the sense that they're kind of like these uh, CBGBs yeah. uh, OGs, like right. it's like you know, you, it's like maybe part of it is just the energy that's been with Blondie all this time, or maybe people are like, oh, this is the appropriate. Uh, yeah. Thing to do this wow, that is yeah. wild. I guess you never know. You never know where you're gonna find your next uh, mosh pit. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> But yeah, that's that's uh, kind of makes it miss. Like, I would love to. I would give anything to be back at a live show. I get punched in the face. I don't care. Just to be able to go back to a show <laughs> at this stage. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah there, there's a, I feel like there's just a whole lot of things about shows that are n- like now through just having buddy, you know, I guess it's only been like six or seven months, but it's, it's still, I mean, I mean, given the, the quantity of shows I would see in a year, it's, it is a bunch of things to not do. Yeah. Um, <coughs> sorry. Um, but yeah, it, it does feel like a lot of things that were once annoying will at least at first be very quaint and like, oh, yeah, <laughs> like, oh, okay. There's so many times I just remember being like, oh, I'm too tired to like walk around the block to go to that show. But like now it's like, oh, my God, I would just wait in line <laughs> till doors open. I would be there. Yeah. <coughs> well, um, sorry. What was the last thing you got to see? Um, The last thing I got to see, I can't. The last thing I remember I was the, the day the borders closed, uh, Lower Dens were supposed to be performing around the block from from where I live. And I remember no, or it was like the Friday, I guess. And like the Wednesday, everyone was saying like, okay, we might go like, might have to close the borders to the United States. Like, I don't know what's happening. Um, and I remember just thinking like, Oh, but I'll probably just go to the show and like not stay for long. Like, <laughs> like, oh, okay, well, I, Oh, there's like a virus. Well, I'll probably just go really quick just to say hi and like watch her set and then I'll leave. Like, but then obviously they never came into Canada and the show was canceled and every show since then has been canceled. Um, but I even remember there when that show got canceled thinking like, oh, well, Caribou and Caitlin Aurelia Smith are here in two weeks. Like, so I guess that'll be the next show I get to go to. The ones in between there I don't go to, but like that one later in the month is probably still going to happen. <laughs> it's like March 23rd. Like, no way. That didn't happen, obviously. <laughs> it was just like had no concept of how how crazy this lockdown was going to be. Yeah. Caribou was one of the things I was supposed to see, too. And now like that's one of the shows that has not been canceled. It's just been rescheduled a few times over. Mm-hmm. And eventually I'll see it. Yeah. And like, uh, and it was, it's, it must be heartbreaking because, like, he had kind of reached the point where in, in New York City he had uh, the Brooklyn Steel, which is pretty big. Oh, wow. Um, he had three shows there. And, like, one of the shows had to be a matinee just so they could have a third show. Wow. Like that, he had that level of demand to mm-hmm. see Caribou. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow. Yeah. That's yeah. A, a, something happened. I, I'm not even sure what happened, but yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, um, yeah, just that level of like getting your whole year uprooted and everybody that works with you having their whole years uprooted. It's like, it's just such a, I mean, I don't, I don't need to repeat this. We all know it, but it was such a domino where like canceling one show just means everybody on his team's out of work and every venue is out of work and people who book the venues are out of work and people who clean the venues are out of work. And it's just like such a crazy thing for this industry because it, it really shows you how reliant we were on touring and how much of that really took up an artist's career and like how important it was to artists like putting out records. Um, So yeah, it's pretty devastating for sure. There's a thing where it's like, okay, maybe there's a different way to do things, but I think so many people go into being an art, being an artist and being making music because they like playing shows. Yeah. So like, what do you do with all those people? Yeah. And then there's like a whole other aspect of the, the community will create these artists and, and will be the breeding grounds for artists to like meet each other and create bands and create projects. And like, I don't even know how sometimes how I would have met people I played shows with or music with if I hadn't, met them from playing shows. <laughs> and a lot of the times here being in Montreal, like I, 
I would, a lot of my friends were in touring bands, so I would just see them when they would pass through on tour. And if they were on cycle, well, they pass by like four times a year. So I get to see them four times a year. But when it, they're not, no one is touring, like no one is coming here and I don't get to see a lot of friends. Um, and same thing as being on tour, you know, some, some of my best friends are in cities where we would play, you know, in New York or LA or San Francisco. And I don't get to see them where I would usually see them like so many times a year. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely like, I don't know. I, it's, it's hard to imagine how you could be starting a new project. Obviously there's like pro and con. A lot of people can start projects cause they're at home and more time to learn how to use music equipment or you can meet people online for sure. But there is something about meeting people through playing shows, um, that I, I feel like is super important and super important. Like as a young person too, just having a place to go. Um, and like, I don't know, like as a teenager, I was always at shows, whether I liked the band or not, it was just something to do and somewhere to go. Um, and so I, I where, where did you live as a teen? Was that? Where did you live as a teen? I, I lived in Montreal. I was here. I've never left, unfortunately, but uh i you know i would go to punk shows you say unfortunately but i like montreal a lot <laughs> well you got some yeah. it's all right it's all right i have a love hate with this town but yeah i mean I would, I would go to like ska shows or punk shows or like it was that thing where you would go see show and then whoever opened you were automatically a fan of that band just because they were opening for the band you like so then you would go see that band and i don't know i would just i would just go to stuff just to go just to have something to do and somewhere to go and meet people and met so many people just from being at shows and being like 14 or 15, just being like, hello, <laughs> like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in high school. I'm just like learning about music and I want to just learn as much as I can. And I do think you can do that online for sure, but there's, there's, I don't know. I, I don't want anyone to have to miss out on those opportunities of just like seeing something live and experiencing it live too. What was your first band uh, that I went to see? No, 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 that you were in. Oh, like, that, that I was started, in. Or what, that you only joined. Um, I had a band called Danny Flash, which I think has been scrubbed. I don't even actually. It was pre-internet, so it's not. It was never on the internet, but it was. Uh, I think if we knew what we were doing, it would have been. <laughs> it could have been cool. It was kind of twee, but like I thought it was. I thought it was like. Um, sunny day real estate or something like or jimmy world i thought it was like emo but it really just sounded kind of like i don't know twee sort of keyboardy guitar um but you know it was just something we were in high school we just were making songs and learning how to record them and no goals or ambitions or like trying to do anything with it but it was just like a fun thing to do together that still sounds like a fairly ambitious band for teenagers. <laughs> yeah, I guess we were maybe all like A types, so we were all just like, okay, we gotta. <laughs> but yeah, it was you know we were probably fifteen, I guess, at that time, fifteen or sixteen at that time. Um, so yeah, that was that was like the first sort of musical band I had with anybody. And- and did you just kind of like move through different bands before settling on No Joy or, 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 or settling sounds like the wrong word? <laughs> I guess yeah. this is fine. Settling, yeah. yeah. Um, no Joy, that's a good name. Do. Let's just stick with it. <laughs> um, no, I had a band after 
uh, Bad Flirt that uh, sorry, after after Danny Fletcher, it was called Bad Flirt. Um, it was like, it started as a solo project. And again, like all these things when I was doing them, the execution was interpreted, could be interpreted cool, but like I was trying to do something else. So it didn't really make sense. But I was, it was basically acoustic guitar. And then I programmed beats that I had on a Tascam 4 track. So I would just play along with it. Um, and then that evolved into a full band and we did... We did record together, and Laura from Nojoy was in that band with me. So we kind of we went through the ringer with that band. Like we we definitely went from DIY touring and sort of doing things ourselves and not being so serious about it to like signing to an imprint of Universal Canada, and then suddenly like playing private parties and doing things that were like, why are we doing this? This is like doing interviews on TV and. Um, truthfully, I think that was why Laura and I started No Joy. It was just because we were like kind of burnt out from the experience of, of being in like a pop rock band that was expected to be like, you know, so how many times I heard like, you guys will be the next metric. And it was like, I don't think so. <laughs> Probably not. But like so many, there was a lot of expectation put on that band by the time we reached a certain level so that we just sort of like called it quits and and Laura and I decided we wanted to start writing something that was like the antithesis to that that was like completely not accessible not radio friendly not no marketing no pictures no nothing um so yeah and and most of all no joy and what and most of all no yeah, joy and most of all no joy that was basically it that was that was it yeah did you choose that name because you were dissatisfied <laughs> with the previous experience no, I can't remember how that we were brainstorming. And again, it was like something where we were just writing songs and we weren't really like, we were writing songs. We kind of brainstormed a name. It was very casual. It was very like, we had two songs. We had asked um, some of our friends to just like play, you know, somebody played bass. We had two drummers at one point that was like such a bad idea. Like who knows? It was just like a kind of like a messy, let's just see how it goes. Um, and I remember we, a friend of ours who promoted shows in Montreal was like, Oh, I have um, Grant Hart from Husker Du is playing a show. Uh, like, you know, do you want, is your band ready? Do you want to open? I was like, yeah, we're ready. Of course we'll open. But we had like two songs. <laughs> we had two songs that were on the, the seven inch we put out. This was before it was out, but we, we only had two songs. So we like played that show with Grant Hart and basically like it, it was a mess. We improvised, but the whole, the reaction from that show, I think was when we, Laura and I were both like, oh, okay, so we should do this band because it seems like people like that, even though we didn't know what the fuck we were doing on stage. <laughs> yeah. Did you play like covers or something to fill the time? We just had like rough sketches of songs that like now it like gives me like a pain to think I went on stage being like, here's a little demo. Check it out, everybody. But like, I think we just had rough ideas of songs that we tried to play. But again, I think like the energy of Nojoy at that time was way more of a um, not necessarily like listen to how great the song is, but like here's an experience of a lot of volume and a lot of noise and like kind of more of a you know I, I honestly think the set was probably 15 minutes, <laughs> um, but I just that remember feels exactly right though. Yeah. For that. <laughs> 
Like yeah. when I, I've seen shows like that where it's like, oh, this would have been great at 15 minutes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> at, at, once you get to minute 30, you're like, oh, you really kind of exhausted the point a yeah. while ago. Yeah. I, I mean, there's very few bands I want to see for more than 30 minutes. So, so yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, the, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't actually feel that way. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm not just looking at a wall of like records. Like, yep. No, I'd want to like two hours from them. <laughs> 90 feels right for that. Uh, one. <laughs> <laughs> it, it depends on their catalog and who you're talking yeah, about. True, but true. Yeah. Like, with, like the vast majority of bands. I think that's true. 30 yeah. minutes. is, is, is It's plenty. like enough to be like, okay, that was great. Thanks. <laughs> Certainly for like newer bands, yeah, for sure. Yeah, like if, you, if you don't have like the the material, you gotta tighten it up. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, have you been using this time to you know write or mess around with new stuff? A little bit. It's it's kind of hard because when you don't tour, which is what we would normally be doing at this moment, um, it requires just a lot of self-promotion which is so annoying <laughs> um but you just kind of end up sit you know focusing more on your socials or on like you know how are we going to follow this up or if touring comes back in june like do we will we have like a new merch item for june so my brain's been kind of still in sort of the marketing press cycle of this record so i haven't had too much time to like write anything but I've also learned from experience that like after after we um, released Ghost Bond we really rushed into writing another record and it was kind of the thing like we just got to put something out fast we got to keep touring we got to keep it going and it we scrapped it we did everything we like mixed it mastered it everything it was ready to go and we just at the last second it was us as a band deciding like actually this is not that good we should we should wait and take our time writing something that we really love and who cares about the, you know, how, how much demand there is. It doesn't matter. Um, and so that was in my mind when I was making motherhood where I was just like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that it's been five years and like the industry is completely different. Like just take your time doing it. So because my mind is still in like motherhood world and I, I never like to make the same kind of record twice. It's just boring because I'm still in that world, I don't want to start writing anything because I think it's going to be too similar to what's on that record. I think I would want to have a different approach and like a, um, not be like, not have my brain influenced by any kind of industry stuff that I'm stuck doing at the time. Yeah. And also it seems like having time between the records is kind of benefited in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I th- like, so, like, so when you felt that more of that pressure to get something out as soon as possible, like what, wh- where was that pressure coming from? Was that more internal or is that kind of like the sense that to, to justify touring, you need to have material? Kind of, kind of. I think it was, it was both. I mean, at that time, Ghost Bond was our first record and it, it opened a lot of doors for us and it allowed us to tour for months on end. Like it, it was really, you know, we were touring most of the year. Um, and then, you know, uh, often you're told when you have a full length or a new record, that's when you can get the, the better guarantees and that's when you can get the press and that's when you can get the grants and this and that. Um, so there was outside influences, but it was also in, internal where we just felt like, 
you want to keep it up and there's demand for music and you want to give them something else and you want to produce more things. So I guess it was from, from all over. Um, but ultimately, you know, scrapping that record led to us writing way to pleasure, which by my, in my mind is like a far superior by a lot record than what we would have put out in between. So I think like giving stuff time is really important and not just like, I don't know, not trying to make sure that you can get on the next festival cycle sort of thing. You mentioned uh, getting the grants and I know that motherhood uh, in part came from a grant. Like how does, like how difficult is that process in Canada? Um, And is that something you can kind of like do that multiple times or I'm not really sure how this works. Oh, it's a lot. (laughs) Um, I mean, motherhood firstly was, the, the record itself was completely funded um, by myself, personally. I, I funded the whole thing. Um, we did get grants for videos and for um, some of the writing process. I was able to get some grants. But the production itself was all out of pocket. And just, like, basically, I did a lot of touring at the end of 2017 and 2018 to just sort of make sure that there would be some kind of income to, to pay for this record that was eventually going to be made. Um, but the grant system in, in Canada, I'm very thankful for, even though I, I haven't been a recipient of like a lot of the grants that they have. It is such a wonderful thing that they support the arts and they support, you know, like people like me putting something out that's not going to reach like a top 40 billboard chart, whatever. They're they're supportive of of new artists and up and coming artists and people like me on their fourth record trying to do something different. Um, it, it's, it's that nice safety net, you know, when I'm on tour and uh, you're, you just know that you have like a little bit of leeway between like sleeping in the van and like getting a motel, <laughs> things like that. Um, I, I can't say enough good things about, about that. Uh, you know, I can't complain The the government has, has paid for a lot of endeavors that we've done from flying to Iceland for a festival or to South by they they're very supportive of the arts and, and of labels too, of independent small labels in Canada opening up. They, they also support. So it's, it's truly like, yeah, I I'm thankful to be able to access any of them at all. I can kind of sense any musician in America listening to this and just kind of weeping right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so like, what, what is the application process like? Do you have to make like, make a case for the record you're making? Um, I think it varies depending on what there, there's very like, you know, different categories that you can apply for. And um, it depends what, you know, so for this record, I didn't have a, a, you know, recording production grant or anything like that. Um, but, you know, for touring grants, you just, you have to sort of like say where you're going and have your budgets and then like, you know, like who's coming with you and how much you got to keep all your receipts. You got to, you have to advance the costs, but you, you get them back in the end. So it, it's, um, you know, it, it, it depends. There's, there's different grants for different sort of projects. I would say they have, you know, yeah. different writing grants, production grants, songwriting, all, there, there's a ton of different ones. So you just have to have your like, you just have to be organized and like have a lot of Excel sheets ready and stuff like that. 
uh, I remember uh, when I was at BuzzFeed, I remember being asked by someone from Merge Records to like write a quick thing, uh, ex- kind of validating that uh, Dan Behar is in fact a uh, critically acclaimed musician. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, for I, that may have been a visa, actually. But oh, yeah. yeah, it was. A, it was oh, yeah. yeah. Was a, I, that was probably a visa. I I. I have done that. That's a valid. Yeah, 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 that yeah. Dan Behar is in fact a real deal. That, that's good to know. Then I'll ask you for when I have to do my visa again. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, there's like you know, a lot of the grants are on the basis that you are going to be exporting Canadian goods, so to speak, to an international market. So you kind of have to prove that you're going to lend me money because I'm going to sell a Canadian product to a bunch of people and I'm going to prove that I'm doing it. And you have to write how you did it and what the successes were and you have to have goals and, you know, it's a lot of paperwork, but it's still, um, it's just nice to know that somebody, somebody being the Canadian, Canadian, the Quebec government, it's just nice to know that, that, that is available. And um, I do think, that if artists are in a position where they are making a ton of money and clearly, you know, don't need the grants, it would be great if that was not, they couldn't still access that. I'm not totally sure. Like, I don't know if you're like making millions of dollars, if you could still be like, please pay for this so I can save a couple thousand bucks. Um, It'd be great if it was reserved just for people who are still kind of trying to make it or, or, you know, taking a loss at times, but anyway, you cut it. It's, it's really nice that there's this system that is available and, um, ha- has helped me tremendously in like the last 10 years for sure. Yeah. It's nice. It's just kind of nice to think about on, from, from this perspective of an American where the system is so brutal that yeah. just even the idea of like getting any kind of grants for this stuff, it seems like this, I, it's 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 almost entirely impossible to me to imagine the U.S. government doing that. Maybe Oof. maybe state governments. Maybe like maybe there's like some states that would want to like you know we want to like uh, boost an art scene. And mm-hmm. God, I, I don't even know what state would that would be likely. <laughs> let's say Connecticut. Like Connecticut <laughs> wants to like have its own thing for once. Yeah, yeah. You know? Go for it, Connecticut. <laughs> I could, I could even, or even like, kind of. I'm from the Hudson Valley of New York, oh. and I can kind of see that happening. Oh, maybe definitely, on a very local level. Yeah, there. that's you know, there's, there's, um, yeah. I think, like, I, I'm not entirely sure, so I don't, I almost don't want to say because I didn't read it through. But somebody told me today that there's actually a grant that they're offering to venues and promoters where to organize properly socially distanced shows uh, when it's able to happen again because. Currently in Montreal, we're in like a red zone, which is sort of half lockdown. Um, but that regardless if the show happens or not, the promoters and the venues still get that grant money, uh, which is so nice. It's just like it, it will just be, I don't know, there, there's a lot of uh, support for the arts, which is, which is uh, yeah, it helps, it helps be creative as well. Yeah, God, God bless uh, yeah. Canada. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much for doing this. Of this course, was really great to talk to you about all of this. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs>